I want us to, to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke again this morning. And if you can find your way to Luke 14, um, that's, that's where we're going to look briefly together today. If you've been sort of following along with us this past month, if you've been reading through the chapters of Luke, if you've been doing the, the devotional guide with your families, you've been kind of developing an imagination for what it might be like to sit at a table, to share a meal with Jesus. And so this morning as we do that yet again, as we come to another of Luke's uh, accounts of Jesus sharing a meal with, with a particular community of people, I, I want to invite you to, to sort of visualize this um, and think about what it would be like for you to come to the table this morning. So I'd invite you um, to close your eyes if that's helpful. It's always more helpful to me when I'm trying to picture something or to imagine something to close my eyes. I want you to think about what it would be like if, if this very moment you, you were invited to a meal with Jesus. I want you to picture yourself entering that, that banqueting space, whatever it might look like in your imagination. I want, to, I want you to, to picture yourself finding your way to a seat around that table with, with the other guests who are here this morning. I want you to notice that Jesus is sitting around that table with you, maybe next to you. But here's what I want you to pay special attention to as you imagine this. As you sit at that table, what is it you are most hungry for today? What desires do you bring to that table? Just ask the Lord to maybe help you to see what What's at work most deeply in your spirit today? Maybe you come to the table this morning and you are hungry for rest. You are physically or emotionally spent and tired. You come just seeking, seeking restoration. Maybe you come to that table with the desire to be noticed, the desire to be seen by others. Maybe you come to that table with a longing for approval. Maybe you come to the table this morning and you're more agitated in your spirit. Maybe you're upset. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're still processing something that's happened in the past week. And you come to that table looking for a place to bring those concerns, looking for the peace of God in your, your current situation. What is it that you desire today? What is it you bring to this time with Jesus. I want you to invite I want to invite you to open your eyes. I want you to think about those things. Keep those those desires. If you 
sort of thought of anything or anything came to mind, keep those kind of front and center as we come to the, the passage this morning. We're going to be in Luke 14, but I want to sort of bridge the gap between last week and this week. If I can get my slides to advance. Sam, I might be leaning on you. Thanks. Last week we were in Luke chapter 9. If you remember, Jesus has been ministering in the Galilee. He's been doing incredible signs and wonders. He's been calling a following of disciples to himself. And last week we saw Jesus call them together, proclaim the news of God's kingdom to this crowd in Bethsaida. He heals a huge variety of people, and then he feeds them this incredible banquet. And it's around this incredible feast of multiplication that particularly the 12 who were closest to Jesus begin to see him in a new way, to see who Jesus really is, that he's the Messiah sent from heaven. But at the end of of Luke 9, where we were last week, Jesus kind of concludes his ministry in Galilee, and we're told that he intentionally sets his sights in a different direction. At the end of Luke 9, Jesus decides to start moving toward Jerusalem. And Jesus goes toward Jerusalem knowing what's ahead of him. He knows that it's going to be a costly decision. He knows that Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Holy Saturday, where he lies in the tomb, are all things that await him. And yet he makes that choice on purpose. And so in in the chapters between Luke 9 and Luke 14, Jesus performs a few miracles. But increasingly, Jesus takes time to teach and to speak about the nature of the kingdom that he has come to bring. What life in that kingdom is like. And he also takes several opportunities to address things he's concerned about. Particularly the teaching of the Pharisees. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The things that are at work kind of deeper in their hearts and desires that may be hidden, but that are causing people to be led astray and to miss the kingdom Jesus wants to bring them. So Jesus is doing all of these things. He's on his way. He's on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, getting ready for Passover. And because he's on the road, he's dependent on guests, people they meet along the way to open up their homes to provide hospitality and food and accommodation for he and his disciples. And so this morning, we're told about one, one prominent Pharisee who may be hearing of Jesus' reputation as a great teacher of Torah, welcomes him into his home to eat. We want to see what takes place around that table. This is Luke 14. We'll look at verses 1 through 11 today. Let me pray as we, we look at God's word together. Lord, may the words of my mouth this morning, may the meditations, even the deep desires of our hearts, be found pleasing in your sight. We depend on your spirit to do that miracle today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke 14, verse 1 and following. 
It says one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of Jesus was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So Jesus, taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him on his way. Then Jesus asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And still, they had nothing to say. Luke 14 describes for us a strangely silent dinner party on Jesus' way to Jerusalem. And this story, as it unfolds, reads like a number of these meals that Luke has been describing for us. By now, we should kind of be noticing some patterns of what Jesus does around tables with people. Jesus, you know, in these stories is invited into someone else's home for a meal. Typically, at the meals that Luke records for us, something unexpected or unusual takes place around the table. And then Jesus, following on whatever that surprise is, takes that as an opportunity to open our eyes to a kingdom reality, to help us see something in a new way. And so we can expect that probably something similar is going to take place here. But in each one of these specific table stories, the details really matter. We have to pay attention to what is going on, who's around the table, what Jesus does, so that we can have our eyes opened as well. So let's, let's again try to set the scene of this particular meal. Verse 1 tells us that from the moment Jesus walks into that room, he knows he's being studied. It says he is being carefully watched. This is probably... Partly because of all the things he's already said about the Pharisees in recent days. Right? He's, he's begun to, to speak honestly and sort of painfully and truthfully about some things that concern him. Jesus is being watched because of the signs he's been performing. And in particular, he's performed miracles on the Sabbath day in recent weeks. And that's caused quite a bit of controversy. So Jesus steps into the room and he knows he's being watched, which would make it difficult to relax, right? To enjoy the company you've been invited to share a meal with. But then in in verse 2, it says, with all eyes on Jesus, focused on what he's going to do, the host sits Jesus down next to a man with a pretty serious medical condition. Verse 2 says he's a man who has swelling throughout his body. And in in the ancient world, even kind of in old English, this this condition was referred to as dropsy. Maybe your Bible translation has that word there in verse 2. 
In, in modern medicine, we now refer to this condition as edema. And, and it simply describes the, the swelling of the body due to a, a, an excessive retention of fluids. And usually, dropsy or edema is experienced by people who have heart conditions or kidney conditions that, that prevent their body from expelling or, or processing fluid from their body in, in the way that is needed. Now, in, in Jesus' day, in Greek and in Hebrew culture, this particular disease was particularly feared by the rich and the wealthy. It was actually a disease that was thought to afflict the most prominent people in society because they were the people who had the privilege and the ability to, to eat and to drink at these extravagant banquets. Right? The, the rich were, were those who had the luxury of overeating and overdrinking and often leading them into a lifestyle that, that put them uh, in a place to, to suffer this condition. But even worse than, than the swelling of, of the body, what most people feared about dropsy was a particular symptom that accompanied that condition. And that was that you experienced a constant and insatiable thirst. Which is ironic, right? Because your, your whole body is full of fluid, but that causes your body to never feel like it's been saturated, like, like you're, you're, you've had enough to drink. There's an imbalance that happens in the brain chemistry and the body. And so ancient writers took note of this. The Greek poet Ovid wrote that one whose belly swells with dropsy, the more he drinks, the thirstier he grows. You can never get satisfied. And so this, this unrelenting thirst made dropsy both a, a condition, a physical condition that was feared, particularly by the rich and wealthy in the ancient world, but it also became a metaphor in the ancient world for the way that those who were rich or powerful or prestigious had a tendency to have other unquenchable desires at work in their life. Things like wealth and greed and this hunger for status and privilege. And so the, the rich and powerful were sometimes said to be plagued by a kind of dropsy of the soul. So dropsy then is seen both as a physical ailment and also a spiritual deficit and condition rooted in unhealthy, unmet desires. That's how the ancient world thought about this condition. So back to, to Jesus' meal. We're told Jesus walks into the room. Everybody's looking and wondering what Jesus is going to do. And he, he happens to be seated next to this man, this swollen and thirsty man. And yet, the most surprising thing is nobody else in the room seems to care. Right? They are too busy ignoring the condition of this man. Either they're too interested in eating and drinking and being noticed themselves, or they're too busy keeping their eyes on Jesus to make sure they, they monitor whatever he's going to do. 
to actually be concerned about how fragile this man's health is. And by inviting this guy to a banquet, he's actually at risk of eating and drinking himself to death. And he's, he's in, a, in a really perilous situation that the Pharisees are paying no attention to. I'm convinced that most of us, if we come to church on a regular basis, if we sit in these pews on Sunday mornings, probably have more in common with the Pharisees than we would care to acknowledge. And we've, we've spoken already in the past month that, that often we, we know there are certain kinds of people, certain kinds of sins, certain kinds of problems that we feel really uncomfortable sitting next to at a table. Right? We could think back to the woman in Luke 7 who anoints Jesus' feet and how that causes a problem around the table. Right? We, we may at least be aware that we have those issues in our life, welcoming those people into our lives. But this situation is different and I think draws our attention to other kinds of infirmities, other kinds of conditions and problems and sin that are actually rooted in our faith communities, right? That have taken root in our own lives, but that we've learned to ignore and to pay no attention to. Our own disordered desires that we don't even see anymore. But gratefully, the gospel tells us there is someone who sees us and notices us, even if we don't. Someone seated beside us at the table. And so in verse 3, as Jesus is sizing up the situation, he asks the Pharisees a question that's on his mind. And seeing this man across from him, he says, on a Sabbath day, like this one that we're all enjoying, on a day that God has set aside to give rest and to perform restoration in his creation, Jesus says, what do you think? Would God be okay if someone got healed on the Sabbath day? And the response that Jesus gets is incredible, and it's telling. Pharisees are silent. They look back at Jesus with these empty stares. They don't know what to say. And so in verse 4, we're told that Jesus, with every eye watching him, answers their silence by turning and laying his healing hands on this man's swollen body. Not only does he heal the man, but then it says in verse 4, he sends the man away. He sends him away from this toxic banqueting table of these prominent Pharisees so that he might go and thirst no more, to borrow a different line from the Gospels. Jesus reorders this man's body. He reorders this man's soul to heal him at the level of his desires. And with some of, of Jesus' miracles, we could, we could look at this text and, and Jesus could say, job well done, right? A life has been transformed. A man has been rescued 
and saved from, from sin and from possible death. But here, Jesus isn't finished yet. That's not where the story ends in verse 4. Because as Jesus sends this man away from the table, he turns back to those other guests. And he sees a whole room full of people, swollen and sick and thirsty. Right? Swollen with, with equally toxic things hidden in their hearts. Equally insatiable desires. But they're, they're better disguised, better hidden. And Jesus wants to offer them healing too. And so in verse 5, he tries a second question on the Pharisees. He says, well, what if your animal then? Or, or what if your own child fell in a well on the Sabbath day? Would God want you to save them? And of course, the, the answer, the question here is, is, is a no-brainer. Right? Of course God would want you to go find a rope and, and get that animal or get that child out of the well as quickly as possible. Right? What kind of picture would we have of a God who, who would forbid us such a thing? And yet here in verse 6, Jesus gets mute silence again. Right? The people at that table had painted themselves into a corner into a particular picture of, of a God who's mostly concerned about rules and regulations and appearances and approvals. So that, so that they couldn't even be rescued from that well they're drowning in. But Jesus desires to heal. Jesus desires to help them. But to do so, he needs them to to name, to bring their own desires to the table. And in verse 7, Jesus offers to get that process started in a healing but also a, a painful way. Look at verses 7 through 11. It says, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may also have been invited. If, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take Choose the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus tells them this parable because I think he wants them to really study what desires have they come to that meal with? What desires did they bring to dinner that night? 
And as Jesus tells them that story, it's, it's clear that while the Pharisees were watching Jesus enter the room, Jesus was also watching them. He was noticing their behavior. And he watched them jockey for the particular places to sit that night. Right? Every person at that meal wanted to be in the most advantageous position possible. They were seeking a seat that would confer honor and approval upon them. And the trick in, in banqueting situations among, among the, the rich and the prestigious in the ancient world was to know what seat you belonged in. Right? There was a risk if you sat too far up the table, too close to the host, as Jesus points out, you might get shamed. Right? Someone else might show up after you and the, the host might say, actually, you've got to go down further down the table, pick up one of the seats that are left down there because this person belongs where you're sitting. But at the same time, you didn't want to, to just go off and sit at the kitty table, right? You wanted to talk to the important people that were there that night. And so we seek this measure of approval. I want to sit where I belong. Many years ago, uh, Someone I knew invited me to be an extra on a movie set for a day. And I, I showed up there, you know, and, and did the things they asked us to do. And it was feeling kind of important, like, wow, I'm on a movie set. But around noon, they, they stopped the filming for an hour or so so that everybody could get lunch. And I, I had seen there were caterers coming and going from this room off to the side. And so people started making their way over to, to this banquet area that had been set up. And I, I walked through the door, and I picked up a plate to, to walk through this buffet line. And I noticed I was getting some strange looks. And someone came up to me, and they said, this room is reserved for the actors. <laughs> and they said, you can eat outside. And they handed me a brown paper lunch bag, and it had like a saran wrap sandwich and a, a can of Coke in the bottom of it. And that was a not-so-subtle reminder of where I belonged at the table, or that I didn't belong at that particular table. And so I did my little walk of shame and sat on the steps and ate my lunch. But what's at work in, in Luke 14, what's at work in many of the social interactions we all have, everyday social interactions, is our desire to know where we belong. It's a desire for status. And what Jesus speaks about in this parable is the way status seeks to externalize that need to belong. And the way most communities do this is by creating status symbols, right? Things that we can attach our sense of belonging to. It could be where you sit at a meal. It could be the clothes that you wear. It could be the signs that you put up in your front yard. It could be the letters that you put in front of your name. Right? All of us probably enjoy greater status in some circles and not as much status in other circles. But I think we, we seek status because we think it, it confers upon us a kind of credibility. Right? And it, it creates an access to certain groups of people. And so we are tempted to see status and approval as a pathway to security. 
If I have enough of it, I'm secure. I, I will have my desires met. But the way Jesus speaks about status here is more like a pathology. It's a sickness. Status creates this desire within us that, that swells and creates this greater and greater thirst for affirmation and for acknowledgement and for, for standing above others. And it's a desire that can never be satisfied. Right? No matter how much status we secure, someone else can turn up with more of it and we get bumped from our spot at the table. And so like the man Jesus healed back in verse 4, Jesus wants to give us a way out. He wants us to be able to leave that table. He wants to lay his healing hands upon us. So Jesus gives us an opportunity to leave our seats voluntarily. Verse 10, he says, when you get invited to a meal, get in the habit of taking the lowest place. Look for the chair that no one wants to sit in and choose that. Choose to belong there. Don't try to sit up here, but come down here. And Jesus says, if we make that our habit, if we choose to sit in the lowest place, we'll find that we have some surprising company. We'll find that Jesus is seated there with us as well. And so to, to do that in actual practice, right, to make a habit of, of choosing and, and relinquishing our need for status, and for approval and all of these other things. I want us to ask Jesus again to help us name our desires, to name what's going on within us. What are we bringing to his table? And so I want to finish just with one or two moments with, with a similar prayer exercise to how we started out today. I want you to close your eyes again. And I'm just going to lead us through a brief prayer. I would just ask you to notice maybe things that the Holy Spirit brings to mind. Holy Spirit, would you help us to see where we are taking our deepest desires to be fed? Jesus, would you tell us, would you show us what tables have we been coming to with these desires in us? Jesus, would you help us to see who sits at the head of these tables? Whose approval have we been seeking? What do we believe we need to have what do we believe we need to do? What rules do we believe we have to play by in order to be welcome at those tables? Then I would just simply ask you to consider whether it's healthy 
whether it is good, whether it is satisfying for you to remain at that table. As you're, as you're praying now, I want you to imagine Jesus coming and being seated next to you, fully aware of your desires, fully aware of all the things that are at work in you. What if Jesus could take hold of those desires? What if Jesus could release you from them or redirect them within you in a new way? What if you heard Jesus say to you, friend, move up to a better place, a place nearer to me? Would you desire him to lead you there? Lord Jesus, if we hunger and thirst, may we come and sit with you today. In your name we pray. Amen.